0: I think for me, one of the first things I did in my position was help write the regulatory documents for DPX Survive I helped get that into the clinic. So when I see some of those results, so when I see the T cells generated in those patients and when I start to see clinical benefits in those patients, I don't think you can beat that. When you When you start to see benefits to patients, there's no other high that's like that.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Bruce Seat, and you're listening to the Science to Business Network podcast, a show dedicated to showcasing the stories, advice, and insights of individuals who are working at the interface of science, innovation, and business. We'll hear their journeys and how they're using science to change the world. We hope these stories will inspire you and provide you a sense of the wonder and possibilities of science. And the diversity of opportunities and careers to make a meaningful impact. Today, we're going to hear from Dr. Marianne Stanford, Vice President of Research at IMV Inc., a Halifax based biotech company. Marianne's path is fascinating because it evolved from studying thyroid disease to now working on cancer immunotherapeutics, and, as we'll hear, working towards developing a vaccine candidate to hopefully prevent the most recent threat to humanity, the novel coronavirus. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Marianne Stanford. Marianne, welcome to the Science to Business Network podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today about the work you've been doing at the Halifax-based company IMV. You're working on some really interesting areas, including cancer immunotherapies and also a novel coronavirus vaccine. But I'd like to start by asking you a bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you got into science.
0: Sure. So I was born in uh, rural Newfoundland, uh, about an hour outside St. John's. I grew up always being interested in science, but not really understanding what that meant. But when I graduated high school in the early 90s, I went to Memorial and did a degree in biology. And as I was completing that degree, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. Um, And I was lucky enough to run into a job ad for graduate studies in the Faculty of Medicine. And it was around thyroid disease. And my sister had thyroid disease. So I thought this was interesting. I'm going to go study this disease. I showed far more interest in it than my sister did or currently does but uh, that led me into studying immunology first autoimmunity and then after I finished my master's I was hooked I went on then to Dalhousie University in Halifax to get a PhD in microbiology and immunology uh, working on T-cells and rheumatoid arthritis and again as I was about to graduate wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next but I attended a talk from this guy named Grant McFadden, who was studying pox viruses, and uh, I thought this is great. This is something different. I'm going to go study pox viruses. So I moved to London, Ontario, to do what ended up being my first postdoc. And I had planned to go there to study the viruses and how they manipulated the immune system. And within the first couple of weeks, uh, Grant came to me and said, "We have this project where we're studying how this virus can be used to treat cancer." are you interested in taking this on? I'm like, yeah, sure. Great. And that started me on a seven year journey studying what is known as oncolytic viruses first, um, with Grant. And then I moved after about four years and Grant moved, he moved to Florida and I moved to Ottawa to study with Dr. John Bell and, uh, So that was my postdoctoral experience. I was a postdoc for seven years. So there is light at the end of the tunnel for the long postdocs. When I was finishing up my postdoc, I really didn't know what I wanted to do next. So the classic route is to um, interview for academic positions. And I did that for about two years. And I was getting frustrated with the length of time it was taking, so I was looking for other opportunities. And as I was interviewing for academic positions, I saw a job ad at what was then immunovaccine looking for somebody with expertise in infectious disease and immunology. And I was like, this is me. This is great. So I applied, I did an interview. And then on one day in September, I got two job offers on the same day, um, one from an academic institution and one from immunovaccine. And, uh, after a lot of soul searching, I um, eventually made the decision to move back to Halifax and join Immunovaccine. And um, I've been there for about 10 years.
1: It's an interesting journey and a good example of how being patient and persistent eventually paid off. I was wondering if we could back up a bit to your time as a graduate student at Memorial University. You were involved in Let's Talk Science, a volunteer program that helps bring science to life. In the classroom of elementary school kids. How'd you get involved with that and what did you learn from the experience?
0: Um, I think it was at the time, it was a continuation from what I had done in my undergraduate.
1: So, in my undergraduate degree, I'd been involved
0: in student life and student outreach. And so, then when I became a graduate student, it didn't have the same sort of network. So, I looked for networks in which I could engage other students. Um, And Let's Talk Science had recently um, started at Memorial. So this was great. I could engage with other graduate students, but I could also then engage with children and science outreach, which I've always enjoyed. In retrospect, it probably helped me get to the position I am today because I was comfortable right from the beginning of my research career with talking about science. Um, So many scientists are not always 100% comfortable talking to the lay public about about their science. Um, But I started right from the beginning, right from when I started my master's
1: degree. In terms of your path towards IMV, what was that transition like?
0: Um, It was actually probably smoother than I would have anticipated. I think when you're a PhD and a postdoc, you feel like you're very well prepared for the academic path. You feel like, you know, everything has culminated to this transition. But my transition to immunovaccine was fairly smooth. I was still doing what I'd been trained to do, which was research. My postdoctoral experience, although it wasn't planned to be an industrial postdoc, or this was in the time before my tax, it actually ended up being sort of structured in that way. So I, I worked on academic projects, but I also worked with companies adjacent to the lab. So I already had a comfort level with things like quality and study plans and A lot of the jargon and the idea of how industrial research was conducted so i was just immersing myself full force into it Um, maybe because i was going to a familiar landscape having lived in halifax it made it probably a little bit easier
1: any lessons then from that time
0: um i think i probably stressed too much about the decision i think i probably thought too much about it i think it's not such, a, such a, a gap or a jump that I, I originally anticipated, especially if you're doing, you know, going from one research position to another. It, it's not that different. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about how research is conducted in biotech or even pharma that's not necessarily grounded in fact. And I think there's a lot more opportunities today for people in that time in their career to actually be exposed to that sort of research. I don't don't think um, the same misconceptions may or may not
1: exist. You did your postdoc with Dr. Grant McFadden and then Dr. John Bell. Both are amazing scientists, but both also started companies. Did they have any influence on you going into industry?
0: Yeah, I think with different mentors, I may have taken a different path. I mean, both of them are very... Pro working in biotech, obviously they've had relationships, their, you know, their careers. Um, I think being exposed to that throughout my training um, definitely took away some of the misconceptions and some of the preconceived notions I may have had. And definitely they encouraged me to do research in whatever form that I chose. It was never about, you know, you're only a success if you go this path. They were
1: both very supportive. Did you have any early mentors at IMV?
0: So again, it was it was very interesting because coming back to Halifax, the research community is relatively small. And I, so I came back and I was able to secure an adjunct appointment at Dalhousie in my old department, right, in my PhD. So that was great because it was familiar and I didn't have to sort of introduce myself every professor there and so i found the ability to collaborate with with former professors was was great and so i think i got some research mentorship definitely from them the scientists that were at IMV when i joined we were about 12 to 15 um in the company so we've and some of those some of those people are still with the company today so there's there's a a group of us that have been with the company for a very long time
1: so you've been there almost a decade, I think. Yeah. How has it been to transition from a startup phase to a larger, more sophisticated organization?
0: It's, it's been very interesting. It's been a, um, a wild ride at times. Um, I think what's great is that we've grown because we've been successful. Um, and I think part of the reason we've been successful is because we've always prioritized the science So it's been interesting to see the science sort of play itself out. And as a result, the company grow. It's been a steep learning curve. I think when you're in a very small biotech, um, you have to learn how to wash the dishes. You You have to be able to do multiple things and be comfortable doing multiple jobs. And as a company grows, you sort of then have to then focus on going back to what you're specialized in. And not everybody loves that. Some people love trying to dip their fingers into everything. I've been happy to go back to just doing pre-clinical research um, and having that focus again.
1: So after your postdocs, you started your industrial career at IMV as a director of research. What kind of projects were you initially involved with?
0: So at the time when I joined, we were writing the first regulatory documents on what has become DPF Survive Act, which is our lead clinical candidate in immuno-oncology. So uh, we were just getting into immuno-oncology when I joined the company, and we still had some infectious disease programs, mostly very preclinical. In the time since I've been in immuno and now IMV, we went through a name change, we have focused more and more on immuno-oncology, DPF Survive Act while maintaining a smaller program i would say in infectious disease and during the time that i've been at imv we um, advanced one infectious disease vaccine
1: into the clinic what was the genesis of imv who founded it
0: (laughs) this is a great story um so About 20 years ago, three to four professors from Dalhousie were presented with a challenge. Their challenge was that they wanted to find a way to control the seal population in Nova Scotia. So the seals started to get a little out of control. And so they were tasked to develop what was essentially an immunocontraceptive. And so they developed this formulation to deliver this immunocontraceptive with seals. They look really cute, but they're, they're actually not so friendly. So you really only had one shot to deliver this immunocontraceptive. And so they developed the precursor technology to what is now DPX. And what they found was is that it worked really well, incredibly well. Uh, you know, up to eight years later, these seals could not have pups. And so that was originally spun out as a, an animal health solution. You know, immunocontraception for seals is a pretty niche market. So the company didn't didn't do that for that long. And actually, that whole technology has been since out-licensed. And then we said, well, where else do you really need to induce very strong immune responses? And, and so most of our focus has been in cancer, where generating immune responses can be a huge challenge. But we have, over the years, had several projects in infectious disease also. Huh. So, oh, yeah, from seals to ovarian cancer. It's a, it was a full circle moment.
1: Do you have any personal connections to cancer?
0: Oh, who doesn't? Mm. Um, I think the first, um, the first connection I really, really connected to cancer was when I was in high school. Um, my grandmother was diagnosed with a fairly aggressive head and neck tumor. I don't think I fully appreciated how bad it was at the time but thanks to a very aggressive surgeon, she, um, she died with cancer, not of cancer, a couple of years ago. So she, I mean, she was a success story, you know, kind of joke that um, she outlived everyone. But it was basically because she had very good doctors who pursued very aggressive treatment But yeah, I think, and that was just around the time I was finishing high school. So I think in some ways it probably imprinted on me my drive to eventually end up in cancer.
1: Immuno-oncology does seem to be set to become one of the central platforms that has a real shot at providing cures for cancer. What excites you about the potential? And what challenges do you face to convince yourself that this is the right direction to go?
0: Yeah, I think the, the capacity is 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 amazing um, and the ability to sort of, i mean you know you think your immune system is such an amazing creature, right and the fact that we could convince your immune system oftentimes to see the cancer and destroy it, you know it's the best biological machine to do it, right much better than chemo, much better than surgery. so I think as we understand the immune system a little bit better, which every every trial every every research proposal understand the immune system a little bit better we're getting better at manipulating it and making those treatments safer and more effective so yeah it's a very interesting field to be in mm-hmm. um we've been very lucky but you know we based it on science you know we've we've said we have to convince ourselves at each step that the data we're seeing convince us that the science is solid and and so in comparison to other people we are we're not focus just on the clinical results, which isn't really important, but like seeing that the T-cells are there, seeing that they're getting into the tumor, they have the capacity to do what they're going to do. I think that's really satisfying when you see those pictures of tumors before and after treatment and you can see the T-cells getting in. That's that's really cool.
1: In terms of IMV's immuno-oncology work, how has that been evolving and what kind of diseases and therapies are you focusing on? So
0: it's interesting. Um, I think when I joined immunovaccine in 2010, even then people thought, oh, immuno using your immune system to treat cancer, nice idea, it's going to never work. Of course, then we had, you know, in 2013, the breakthrough of the year of being PD1 inhibitors. So I think there's been a whole revolution in immuno oncology and the belief that it can be used. We have focused on generating strong T-cell responses against tumor antigens, and we've been very successful. And We're currently in phase two in multiple indications. I think the one one that we're most um, advanced in is ovarian cancer, but we also have data in uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And we have a basket trial in collaboration with uh, Merck combining our product with uh, Keytruda in five different cancer indications. So we're in phase two and and we've been generating good solid strong data and we will continue to do that.
1: How has it been working with big pharma like Merck as an example?
0: Um, I think immuno-oncology is of course again somewhere that's benefited from collaboration. I think the immuno-oncology revolution has been amazing but it's been amazing for a, a subset of subjects and I think the field in general said, well, how can we deliver that amazing result to more people? And, and that's necessarily required a lot of collaboration between pharma and, and biotech and pharma and academia. And we've had really positive experiences. I think when you're going with a spirit of collaboration, I think we've found the same thing with COVID, that people want to collaborate and they want to be successful. And I think that's where you are successful, when everybody wants the same thing.
1: Speaking of COVID and working on something everyone wants, we're currently in the middle of what is an unprecedented pandemic and IMV is one of the Canadian players leading the development of a vaccine. How and why was it important for IMV to dive into the development of this vaccine?
0: I think for us, as, as the, uh, the outbreak and then the pandemic progressed, it became obvious to us that we had something to deliver on the science side. So um, as the data emerged, it became um, obvious that the hardest-hit population were older adults with multiple comorbidities. And in both our, I mean, oncology program and in our vaccine candidate for RSV, that was the population in which we were working. So we're working in older adults and then in cancer The mean age in most of our cancer clinical trials is is well north of 60, and we were able to induce really strong immune responses. So we believe we brought something with the science, and we've also believed it was a social responsibility. If we had a part to play, then play it.
1: Halifax is home to some amazing virologists, immunologists, and a strong group of internationally well-known vaccinologists. Has IMV benefited from the proximity to this pool of great scientists in your pursuit of a COVID-19 vaccine?
0: I think being located in Halifax has been a huge benefit for us. Working with the investigators at the Canadian Centre for Vaccinology has been a great collaboration. Um, And having already conducted this trial in RSV with these investigators, um, they were familiar with us, they were familiar with our product, it made, a very, it made Vern a very easy conversation about moving into um, this sort of vaccine research. It's not a huge field out here, but the people that are here, highly collaborative, ready to work with you and, and really well, uh, well-conducted trials. So we've been very lucky.
1: How supportive has the provincial and federal government been in terms of supporting vaccine development?
0: So we're still in discussions with multiple players on that, and um, like everybody, we're trying to um, manage both the public health um, side of it and, and you know, the development side of it, and everybody's been willing to take our calls, and uh, we're very hopeful.
1: Given your experience studying viruses over the last decade and a half, what's your prediction on where the coronavirus pandemic is heading?
0: It's, it's an interesting thing, right? I heard someone say that this is the, really the first global pandemic where we haven't had a vaccine ready to go since 1918. Mm-hmm. So that says a lot. I mean, um, a lot of the pandemics we've had you know, in the last 100 years have been flu, and the, the ability to quickly deploy a vaccine was right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in many ways, this is unprecedented. Um, And although I think a lot of virologists are not particularly surprised that a coronavirus has emerged, we weren't necessarily that ready. So I think the data is maturing every day, and it's been really interesting to see how fast things have been shared, which I think will only do uh, positive things in advancing therapeutics and vaccines.
1: Because of IMV's pivot to develop a COVID vaccine, What's the learning curve been like to understand the virus, the disease, and the biology in order to inform vaccine development?
0: Um, I think it hasn't been that complicated, the virology. and, And I guess one of the things that the field has really built on is the amount of research that's been done in what we now call classic SARS, so the SARS from 2003, as well as MERS coronavirus. So that That research is something that's been very quickly built upon. So there's a lot of comparators to what we knew from SARS, what we've known from MERS, and that's allowed very rapid um, growth in knowledge. The challenge, I will say, is that in an effort to be very rapid, which I think is fantastic, there's not been the time for as much peer review. So you see a lot of journals in preprint, um, and there's nothing to say that that isn't fantastic research. It just the literature has to be self-correcting, as it goes, and that's always a challenge when you're you're dealing with both your internal R&D as well as external um, interpretations of that data. It's been very interesting to say, you know, you hear in social media, uh, oh, this study says X, and then you actually go to the primary literature and say, oh, it doesn't say anything near close to that. There's been quite a bit of misreporting on even the data that's out there.
1: In a way, we were given a few warning shots over the last two decades that a global pandemic might be coming. SARS, MERS, Ebola, and the H1N1 pandemic have all served as a possible wake-up call for us. But COVID-19 seems to be taking a lot of people by surprise. What lessons should we be taking from these experiences? And what should we be doing differently in terms of how we fund basic, and applied research to be able to support pandemic planning?
0: So um, it's interesting because I think the assumption has been made that the pandemics of today would be flu-based. And there's good reason to believe that. And, you know, the first emergencies of coronaviruses have been relatively wimpy. You know, the the 2003 and, and MERS, to a certain extent, weren't um, incredibly virulent or incredibly um, transmissible. So, you know, hindsight being 20-20, you, you, you know, you can see how we got to where we are. I think it's a good lesson to fund the basic research. I think lots of commentators are now saying about what should have been funded. I don't think I want to comment on that, but there are certainly areas of coronavirus biology that, that we now know are similar to all three surprisingly wasn't funded i was actually surprised that there there weren't as many coronavirologists as i thought there was Mm -hmm. and maybe because i was doing my postdoc in the post-sars period there was quite a lot of talk about coronavirus you know in 2004 and 2005 but i guess in the time since then it's fallen off i think pandemic planning will be very different after this Mm -hmm. and i think you know i think what we learned from ebola versus this, right? Of course, Ebola wasn't a pandemic, but it was an outbreak. And the, the, the capacity to move something quickly with Ebola depended on the fact that vaccine research had been already going on. Mm-hmm. And in coronavirus, it largely had not been. So I think taking those two experiences, I think it will be different going forward.
1: How has COVID impacted your business or even access to supplies and Materials to do science.
0: Antibodies are always a challenge. Um, I don't think people realize how many of their antibodies came from China. Hmm. That that's one that we've not been impacted significantly, but we've heard other people have issues. At one point, there was some component of media that was hard to get, but they seem to figure that out. The consumables are fine. I think some sometimes some supplements. We have to be very proactive. And I I think because of our quality system, things like um, supplements and things, we have, you know, whole lots of them. So we're probably better prepared than maybe some academic institutions. But, yeah, we tend to order now in bulk because we're not sure when the next one will come. Mm -hmm. So that's um, it's been it's been an interesting uh, process between managing staff and managing supplies and managing shipping and managing logistics in a very different way. It's, it's forced everybody to communicate a lot more, which is good, I think, for an organization to optimize your communication is a very positive thing. It's just not, not the way you wanna to have to do it.
1: In terms of communication, how has COVID impacted your ability to hold meetings and are you using virtual tools more and more?
0: So we had a Microsoft 365 approach implemented about a year or so ago because of the, the remote office in Quebec City and, and, and one in, in Halifax. So we have, we've been very comfortable communicating either through Teams or through Zoom and through multiple um, different platforms. So we were really lucky. We, that was seamless for us. People were already pretty integrated in communication. That part has been the easy part. It's been when everybody is coming in from Zoom is a little bit jarring, right? We used to have one or two or three people remote. Now we're having meetings with 20 people on Zoom at once, which is a logistical challenge.
1: As you know, I work for a multinational company, so I was on a meeting today with about 500 people. So there's probably a lot more of that happening with COVID. But what really surprises me is that the system... Actually, has this kind of capacity and doesn't crash out.
0: Oh, their capacity blows my mind because um, I've heard from members of our staff that their kids, like college-age kids, have discovered Zoom and that's how they're connecting. So I'm surprised. I should not would mm-hmm. that it hasn't mm-hmm. it hasn't undergone any any glitches and collapse. I mean, it's been seamless for us. Um, I think more people are just are exploring it, but. I mean, on my personal life, my family has discovered, like, not Zoom, but the capacity for multi-user video chat. Mm -hmm. For better or for worse, it's like, oh, well, we're going to get together and do family things this way now. Like, okay. (laughs) It's kind of like work, but I'll I'll take it.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that because we're going to have to actually celebrate my mother's 80th birthday Probably through Zoom so that we don't accidentally infect her with COVID.
0: Yeah, we did this with my mom last week. Uh-huh. She had her birthday. Okay. And we we did it all virtually. It's uh it's very interesting. I think we're gonna have a family game night. We're gonna play some sort of online video game. All my family's in Newfoundland, so we're used to being remote. We are, but now they all have to be use being remote to each other. Whereas they can usually just walk in to each other's front door every day. Now they're, I think there's a little bit of, <laughs> they're, they're getting, they're miss, they miss each other. Whereas I've always been remote, so I've always called in.
1: What does your family say at the dinner table on, uh, on the vaccine effort here? Are they uh, grilling you on when this is going to become available?
0: Um, no, it's funny because, you know, again, I'm from a really small town. So when we made the announcement... It kind of went through my small town, and so my mom hears from people. They don't. They don't email me and say great job. They email my mom and say, oh, isn't this is great. Maria's working on this. So shout out to them. Everybody in Blaketown. Town. Um, you know, literally, 750 people at Christmas. So really small place, and I'm related to half. So it's been interesting. My mom's like, oh, I ran in or I got a message from so and so. She's not running into anybody, um, and they said, oh, this is great. So. Um, they're kind of used to me talking a lot of immunology around the dinner table. They kind of just, I mean, my my sister works in mental health. So, I mean, she has, she's essential too. So we kind of joke that we're the two essential services. She has to go to work every day too.
1: I wonder how many palagonians are aware of just how many top vaccinologists, scientists, and companies are actually based in Nova Scotia. Do you get a sense of that's well known?
0: I think to a certain extent it is. I think um, we've been around almost 20 years now. Mm. So the company existed in some form, even 10 years before I joined. And I think we have some long-term investors in the Halifax area, and they've been really great boosters. I'm not sure anybody was that surprised. I mean, over the years, we've we've worked on different infectious diseases, so I don't think it was that much of a surprise. Uh, we got great coverage in a local newspaper, so that was great.
1: What's interesting about your career is that you've managed to maintain academic connections and you're affiliated with Dalhousie University. How does that work?
0: Um, so I'm cross-appointed. So I have an adjunct um, assistant professor at Dal. So I stay connected through uh, lectures. So I'll, I'll give so many lectures a year, often the vaccine lecture and, and, you know, some sort of special guest sort of thing. I sit on committees I do, there's a couple of students where I'm sitting on their supervisory committee. And then we have ongoing collaborations with several of the researchers at Dal. And that sort of keeps me connected to the department. And it's interesting, you know, something comes up and, and just being around sometimes somebody will think of me. And I'm also connected through CCFE, I'm a member at CCFA, and also the Beatrice Hunter Cancer Research Institute runs out of Dow, So I stay connected to the cancer community through
1: that group. Do you or IMV take on any students?
0: So we have postdocs mostly. Mm-hmm. So we have a pretty active co-op program of undergraduates. We always have undergraduates within the lab, I would say. Under normal circumstances, we would have two or three around all the time. And then the place we have also focused is with postdocs. So we work with MyTax pretty robust collaboration with them, and um, that also helps keep us connected to the academics because they have an academic mentor as well as us, Mm -hmm. Um, and we typically, I think we're only, we just have one right now. We just had a postdoc finish, so we tend to have one to three postdocs in the lab at any one point in time.
1: How has the integration been with those postdocs?
0: So when my tax first started offering these fellowships, we had two postdocs. And this would have been about five or six years ago. And we, we had two postdocs. And one, after the time that she'd been with us, said, you know, this was great. This was a great experience. I'm going to go off. And I, I, I think the academic paths for me. And she went off to Stanford and did a second postdoc. And then she came back to Dalhousie um, and started her own lab. And we collaborate with her to this day. So we, we have this collaborative research, and she understands us, and we understand her, and it's such a great collaboration. The other postdoc, after the postdoc said, you know, I, I really love working here, and she integrated uh, into the company, and now she's the director of product development. So uh, that was our first experience with postdocs, so we've had a very positive experience. Um, and it really, after two years, it's one of those two. It's, it's either this really fits, and we call it the two-year job interview, or th- they sort of get that academic experience. They go on and do something else and, you know, we, we've connected with them. So it's been really good for us.
1: Sounds like you've got the, almost the best of both worlds. You've got the, you know, the academic affiliations, you're still interacting with students, you're teaching, you're working on some really interesting and important projects at the company. Is this sort of a a pretty good place to be right now for you?
0: Yeah, it's not yeah, it's not bad. You know what I mean? Like, um, I can't complain. I think we really benefit from being close to the academic center. And I, I love that interaction that we have locally. It's, you know, it's small enough that you don't get lost. And uh, I think the science that we're doing is amazing. We've built a really strong group in research, but, you know, all of the other departments around us have built really strong groups. And so... Yeah, now we get to test it out. We get to test drive it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been I've been very lucky, and luckily, you know, if you're from this area, it's very easy to recruit you to come back. We've been, we've benefited from that. We've brought, certainly brought people from outside of Nova Scotia into Nova Scotia. We've had the opportunity several times to have people who were either in other places in Canada or in the U.S. to say, well, you know, you're Nova Scotian. Would you love to come back um, and work for us? And we've We've definitely benefited from that.
1: Have there been any notable recruits that have come back home to Halifax, or that have come to Halifax?
0: I'm trying to think, which is the most recent one? I know we recruited a research scientist who had been working at Harvard, and um, hmm. she wanted to come back to Nova Scotia, so uh, we made that happen. So nice. we were we were pretty 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 pleased, and she's pretty happy to be back in
1: Nova Scotia. And so. What's the work-life balance like in Halifax?
0: Oh, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, work-life balance sort of went out the window the last couple of weeks. But in general, um, you know, we really try to, you know, to tell people the, the best science is always done when people are happy and they're rested and they're, well, you know, so, I mean, you know, we we focus on summer hours. Like we let people go early when we have good weather because we have it for such a short period of time. And mm-hmm. I think that's a definite advantage of working out East is that there's a different sort of, and both, you know, both, both in Halifax and Quebec city will have very similar size cities and similar that so we're more alike than we're different. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm.
1: Early in the company's history, you sometimes had to be in front of investors and sometimes the media how do you approach communicating to investors and lay audiences in general?
0: It's an it's very interesting. I mean, investors will run the gamut from people who, you know, invested on in us when we were shooting SEALs, you know, contraceptives, to, you know, very sophisticated um, specialist investors in the U.S. So, I mean, you, you have a very different knowledge base. And you sort of have to be ready to adapt your message to whoever you might be talking to. It's a little bit of a skill set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where Let's Talk Science has helped, mm-hmm. for sure, being able and being comfortable um, not resorting to jargon, which sometimes is difficult in immunology, as you can well imagine, mm-hmm. because it's full of acronyms. But, you know, it, at the end of the day, you want to get T cells into tumors and destroying them.
1: Do you enjoy communicating science?
0: I do, yeah, I do. I, I I like I like it when I feel like I'm connecting to somebody and they understand where I'm coming from, and then they sort of get it. Like, you know, when somebody's like, "Oh, that's cool." That moment is is amazing. It's almost like a data rush. You know, I, I there's a joke amongst my staff that I'm very data driven, um, but that's second only to to talking to someone and, you know, explaining them a technology and, and finally, oh, wow, that's really cool. So, yeah, I really do appreciate And I mean, I've, I've done things like soapbox science and I think communicating science is so important. If we want to, <laughs> if in, in situations like we are today, we want people to understand science, then it has to be an ongoing conversation. You can't just show up when things are, you know, dire and say, please listen to me. You have to have been talking mm-hmm.
1: for a while. If you weren't doing science, what do you think you'd be doing?
0: Mm, it's a good question. Um, I've I heard a wise scientist say, if you could think about doing anything other than science, then you probably should be doing it, <laughs> which is a pretty pessimistic view of how hard science can be. Uh, I don't know. I'm a Newfoundlander. We're very musically inclined, so maybe maybe something in music.
1: Do you play music? Um,
0: Yeah, I sing mostly. I come from a long line of singers. I play a little piano, learning the guitar with my son. I love music. I love teaching. My my parents are both teachers. Easily, I could have been a teacher. But yeah, I can't. In reality, I can't see me doing anything other than science. Mm -hmm.
1: You've had an interesting career path and seem to have thrived in the startup biotech sector. Would you recommend a career in industry to young scientists?
0: If you're passionate about it, I would say absolutely. It's an interesting field. I I find um, that if you're passionate about it, the the position will come and the opportunities will come. Um, I always, I think you've probably heard me say this, that I think people should prepare for the next opportunity instead of planning for it. So, you know, the more prepared you are for good opportunities, the more that will come your way. But I don't think I could have planned career trajectory that I've had. So I don't necessarily advocate for being.
1: Do we have enough women getting into science-based entrepreneurship and taking up leadership roles? What should we be doing differently to ensure women ascend into these positions, especially in startups?
0: Hmm. Um, I think there's going to be a natural evolution to more um, women in science and leadership positions. I think there's lots of women in startups. I don't think they're always in leadership positions, and I think that could be better. I mean, our staff are more than 70% women. Um, I think they're very bright and entrepreneurial. I think there's a certain training gap in training scientists to be entrepreneurs in general, and maybe women in particular. But I, I'm heartened by some of the programs that I've seen. Not only Let's Talk Science, but here... In Nova Scotia, there's a program called Tech Exploration that partners uh, women in science and engineering and technology with school-aged girls, to particularly, to show them the breadth of technology, not just, uh, just biology or not just life sciences, but also engineering and, and technology and trades. So I'm heartened by what I see. I think, I think it's coming.
1: Where would you like to see IMV being in 10 years?
0: I want us to continue to be successful. I think we, we follow the science. I think we will, we will continue our primary programs, which are in immuno-oncology. We'll apply our science where it makes sense in areas like COVID-19, but in other areas where the types of immune responses that we induce are needed. It would be great to have an approved treatment. At that time, and that's what we're planning for. So in 10 years, yeah, absolutely. And continue to grow and be a East Coast and Quebec City, because we actually have a second office now in Quebec City, but we'll be a, a dual city success.
1: What are some of the most proud moments that you've had at IMV?
0: Um, I think, for me, one of the first things I did in my position was help write the regulatory documents for DPX Survive Act helped get that into the clinic so when I see some of those results so when I see the t cells generated in those patients and when I start to see clinical benefits in those patients I don't think you can beat that I think you know when you've when you when you start to see benefits to patients there's no other high that's like that I mean that and being able to build such a strong team I think we're being tested now but Scientists that are in my team, like they surprise me every day. Things I couldn't have thought of, they they come to me with, yeah, that's great. Why didn't I think of that? Um, So I think between the team and some of the clinical things we've seen, I think, yeah, really proud of, of what we've been able to accomplish.
1: We'll wrap up there, but I wanna wish you and IMV all the best in your pursuit of a coronavirus vaccine and in all the work you're doing in oncology. Thanks for taking the time to sit down with me and sharing your insights and your journey.
0: Anytime. Happy to do it. Thank you. Thanks, Mary.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Marianne Stanford on this episode of the Science to Business Network podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Science to Business Network, please visit our website at www.s2bn.org. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please feel free to email me at bruce.seat at s2bn.org. That's bruce.seat at s2bn.org. Thanks for listening.